Hey all, blessed Easter to everybody. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I am honored to be speaking with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, uh, happy Easter to you, to our listeners. It was certainly a holy week to remember, wasn't it? Yeah. And nonetheless, the Lord is different from all the others, right? That's right. Yes. But the Lord has brought us to Easter, thank God. We, We celebrate his risen life and the hope it brings us. So happy Easter, everyone. Thanks, Excellency. So today we're going to talk about uh, the Apostles, the ragtag group that uh, built the church um, after Jesus' death and resurrection. First, our show is brought to you by the Knights of Columbus Museum. Although you can't tour the museum during this time of health caution, you can always visit on the web. And this week is a beautiful time to take your family online and take a journey together through history, art, and faith. Visit kofcmuseum.org. Excellency, um, so we are, uh, we're still broadcasting remotely from each other. Um, hopefully the sound is better than, than last week. We're, we're tweaking the system, and uh, I, think, I think we have it now. Um, you sound yes. great in my ears. Uh, you always sound great. Never <laughs> uh, I, um, so uh, when we look at, uh, when we look at the, the, the Bible... The Gospels speak about the re- resurrection of the Lord, and then um, immediately following that, Scripture turns to the apostles, this group of, of um, men who were clearly human, flawed in so many ways, so relatable in so many ways, and Jesus chose them to build his church. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting transition Um, St. Luke, for example, who authored the gospel in his name, also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And in the Easter season, to your point, we begin to read from the Acts of the Apostles at daily Mass rather than from the Old Testament. So in the 50 days of Easter, from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday, the Church draws our attention to the early years of the Church and the key figures in those years were the apostles. Just as a sidebar, Mary Magdala certainly plays an important role in proclaiming to the apostles the resurrection of Jesus. In the tradition, she's called the apostle to the apostles because she stayed at the tomb and she encountered the risen Lord and she brought Peter and John the news that the Lord was no longer in his tomb. And then they rushed and came. And in the Gospel of John, it says, John waited for Peter. John went into the tomb and believed. And of course, we already spoke a bit about St. Thomas and his doubts, which factor always in the octave of Easter and his proclamation of faith. So to your point, Jesus chose these men and he built his church upon them, most especially St. Peter, and therefore they are essential to our life of faith. We know the Easter proclamation because they were believers in it, faithful to it, and passed it on. So you really can't understand the fullness of what Easter is all about unless 
you know, you and I and our listeners spend some time trying to understand who these men really were and are, since they are saints in the glory of heaven, right? And oftentimes we as believers uh, take them for granted and don't really spend a lot of time trying to dig deeper. So maybe today we could dig a, a little deep. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds great. It's uh, The timing is just so perfect. So mm-hmm. tell us, um, I guess maybe we should start with the fact that there were 12 apostles and Judas obviously was uh, dropped out of that group um, and they, and they mm-hmm. chose a successor to Judas, uh, Matthias. Matthias, yes, so, by lot, right? In the Acts of mm-hmm. the Apostles, by lot, um, which, which under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles understood that to be God's choice, for they would be 12. So one could ask the question, why 12? Why not 14 or 11 or 6 or whatever? And the answer comes from the 12 tribes of Israel. These, these are the new representatives, if one could say that, of the 12 tribes, the God's chosen people who come from every race and language and way of life. So they are the new 12 upon which the message of salvation that comes from the Lord Jesus is proclaimed. It shows a great continuity for Jesus in his, his uh, upbringing as a faithful Jewish man. And so there were 12. If I may just start with two interesting observations. I have mentioned already uh, a dear friend of mine uh, who, God rest his soul, uh, was a rabbi who taught me the ancient motto that was very much in the minds and hearts of young faithful Jewish men at the time of Jesus, and perhaps even still today. And that is that every young boy wished to be covered with the dust from the sandals of his rabbi. So what does that mean? Well, it helps us to understand why the apostles reacted the way they did when Jesus chose them. For they were ordinary men, tax collector for Matthew, fishermen, Right, Peter, James, his brother John. All right, they were ordinary tradesmen. So recall in the gospel, Jesus appears to them walking along the beach, coming into the temple, wherever it may be, and he says, Come follow me. And Steve, what do they do? They don't debate, they don't go home, they don't talk to their wife or whatever. They immediately respond. Right. right? And and that's kind of strange in our modern way. But it's the immediacy that begins to explain why these men were chosen and why they give you and I hope. Okay, so that motto, to be covered by the dust of the sandals of your rabbi, meant a few things. Every observant Jewish young boy wanted to be chosen by a rabbi to share his life with the rabbi. You know, to uh, learn from him, be instructed, spend time with him, watch him teach, pray with him, and sometimes even go off with him if he was an itinerant preacher, to spend Mm. their life. And that's what it means to be covered by the dust, that you're so close to him that 
as he walks in the dusty roads of the Holy Land, that dust would cover you, you his disciple. That's how you became one day, if it was God's will, a rabbi yourself. And the other interesting fact is that most young men were chosen when they were very young, 10, 11, 12 years old. Huh. So, go back to the apostles. These are young men. The young men being faithful to the Jewish uh, tradition, that they worked alongside their fathers, learning the trade of their father, supporting their family, and particularly their parents, if both were still alive. So they were being faithful, but they were probably in their early 20s. And what does that mean? It means they were passed over. Ah. It means probably all their friends who were brighter or more connected or whatever it may be, they were chosen and the, these men were left behind. Does it mean, though, their hearts were still not on fire to wanting to be in the presence of and learn from, and a, from a rabbi? And so when this rabbi who burst out into the open life of Israel, this Jesus of Nazareth came to them and said, you follow me. They immediately dropped everything because he touched them in the deepest part of their hearts, the deepest desire of their heart. And what that really meant was that he thought they were worth being chosen, that the rest of the world passed them by, but the Lord Jesus did not. That he saw beyond whatever limitations they had. And of course there were many because they weren't chosen. Right. But he saw beyond all that and chose them. And they dropped everything and followed him. Isn't so that, um, it oh, I'm sorry. It teaches us two lessons. That the apostles were certainly limited in many ways, right? For they were yes. not the cream of the crop. But Jesus loved them and chose them. And they walked with him. And all through the years, those three years that the Lord was with them, their rabbi, they showed both their great qualities and their great weaknesses. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating. Uh, and for you and I, Steve, and for our listeners, it should give us consolation, right? Because the Lord does not choose us because we are worthy or because we are perfect or because we have earned it. He chooses us because he loves us, calls us yes. to more, calls us to greatness, will walk with us, but not because we have earned the mark. Right. He will help us with his grace to earn the mark. The question his becomes, what are the qualities the apostles demonstrate in the Gospels. And I think we can say they demonstrate some great qualities and they demonstrate some real faults. So, for example, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, do you remember that story in the Gospel? Where they're debating amongst themselves who's the greatest and their mother comes to Jesus and asks for the greatest seats for them? It seemingly they were so wrapped up in their own thinking that much of what Jesus was teaching, they lost, they forgot. They, they missed the whole point of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. They wanted to be right. first, period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So there was certain, certain self-centeredness there, self-absorption there. And yet on the other hand, we have St. Peter, who in that moment of revelation, that graced moment, where who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. Peter, for all his stubbornness and all his perhaps obstinacy and for his faults and failings, even failing Jesus on the night before he died, nonetheless, there was a deep zeal and passion in Peter that perhaps that's one of the reasons the Lord chose him to be the head of the apostles. So this is my point. For everyone who's listening, uh, when you look into the face of these men, when you look deeper into their lives, I see a lot of me there. I see the, the places and times I have failed. I am painfully aware of my own faults and my sins. And yet I also see, with God's grace, that there are things in me that the Lord can use to his glory. And I please God, perhaps some of that would be a passion and a zeal for proclaiming who Jesus is, which every believer please God, is doing. So they are an interesting group of men. Jesus saw who they could be, but loved them for who they were and remained faithful to them even though they did not remain faithful to him except for the one, John, who did go even to Calvary right, and did not abandon the Lord. Yes. I, I like what do you think, Steve, about these men, these apostles? Excellency, I think it's fascinating that, um, you know, I never knew the story or the, the fact that uh, men are chosen as boys to follow rabbis and the fact that Jesus took these men who were grown already, had been passed over effectively by other rabbis. It's it's very consistent with his ministry, isn't, isn't it, Your Excellency? He, he goes out to the people who are outcast from society, uh, the, the, the also-rans, and, and chooses them as his inner circle. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is consistent with the message of salvation that comes from Jesus, is that no one is left behind. No one. Um, and even though he had foreseen their betrayal, he still chose them. Hmm. You know, I made the point in my homily this Holy Week that it is fascinating, fascinating, at least to me, that in his earthly life, the very first time Jesus refers to these men as friends is on the night before he died. Now, consider what we just discussed, that they ate with him, they traveled with him, they heard him speak, they prayed with him, they saw the miracles, they saw the raising of the dead in Lazarus, in the daughter of Jairus. And yet, it was only the night before he died that Jesus called them friends. So I ask myself, as I ask all of us, why, why, why? I mean, we are so nonchalant with the term in the contemporary world. You know, right. we're friends, I friend you, or we're all friends, right? <laughs> but the truth is, the ancients and 
those in the time of Jesus, including the Lord, understood friendship to be something very particular. And they were his friends. And what's that particularity? Jesus said, there's no greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Friends. Mm -hmm. And a friend is someone you choose to love, not because of race, not because of blood, not because of some sort of genetic relationship. You choose to love the person, even though you may see the person's faults and failings. So when the Lord saw them, on the beach, wherever the, he happened to see them, to call them, he was loving them. And so the night before he died, Jesus said, you are my friends. Why? Because a true friend is someone who can see you at your ugliest and still chooses to love you. Hmm. That's Anthony DeMello's definition of friendship. And hmm. it strikes me it, it, it almost leaves me speechless that this is a celebration of Holy Week, of the inbreaking of the divine friendship God wants to offer to us in his son Jesus. So Jesus knew that, he, that they would abandon him. And then he called him my friends. You will be my friends. And what's interesting, if I may just add one piece to this, do you remember that Peter, who betrayed Jesus three times to his face, astounding, absolutely for fear of his own skin, because he was probably afraid he'd be the next one in front of Pontius Pilate. Yeah. When Jesus appears, resurrected, Jesus asks Peter, remember, Steve, a question. Do you love me? Yes. More than these. Three times. Now, what's interesting is, in the Greek, Jesus uses two different terms for the word love. The first and second times when he asks Peter, do you love me? He uses the word agape, which is that perfect self-gift. Do you love me totally, wholly, completely? And then the third time, Jesus, Peter says, of course I love you. Then he said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. But the third time, it's interesting that the Lord uses the word philia, so he says, do you love me? Will you be my friend? Oh, wow. And Peter says, yes, Lord. And that's where the Lord, and that's when Jesus says to him, then they will tie you and bound you and take you a place you do not choose. For if you're going to be my friend, then you are going to have to give your life. Even if it means to give your life, you will do it for love of me. So in the end, the apostles were Jesus' closest friends. It's fascinating, and it gives me tremendous encouragement, tremendous hope. I please God, when I die and stand before the Lord, he will say to me, come home, friend. Yeah. That's what I pray for. Mm -hmm. Those lucky guys. <laughs> <laughs> um. And we're going to talk more about each of the apostles in the, in the second segment today. I wanted to ask you um, about uh, the women uh, in the group and their roles, because as you said, you know, they had significant roles there. And I'm mm -hmm. especially curious about um, Jesus' mother, Mary, because you don't, I don't remember reading a lot about her 
uh, after, you know, in the acts and things. And so, mm-hmm. you know, where, where, wh- what was their role? Where do you see her going? She was um, given to John. Um, mm-hmm. And so for him to take care of her. On the cross. Yes. Right? Which was the greatest gift in his earthly life Jesus had was his mother. And he gave her to the beloved disciple, beloved because John did not betray Jesus. He was the only one who stayed at the foot of the cross. And tradition holds that John took care of Our Lady in Ephesus. And I had the privilege of actually visiting that little house that is the site of yes. where John took care of Mary. You perhaps have been there too. It's, it's really very small. Right? Yes, up on the mountain. Yeah, typical right. of what a house would have been in, 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 in ancient, um, in, in the apostolic age. Um, but to your point, I think the, the tradition over time confused Mary Magdala with the adulterous woman. Mm-hmm. When in fact, Mary Magdala was the woman out of which Jesus cast the seven demons. And so she was possessed, literally, and freed from this Lord. So her love for the Lord was clear, right? Absolutely clear. Right. Because she was already dead and she came back to life. And Our Lady, as you say, the preeminent, the perfect disciple, she factors, in fact, very little in the apostolic age and in, even in the early patristic age. It was only towards the latter part of the patristic age that Mary rises in the devotional life of the church. Hmm. But she was the perfect disciple, which means she was not at all concerned about herself and her life was the perfect mirror of the Lord Jesus. She understood above all others that she was to be invisible and what was visible was the life of faith and love for her son that would shine through her. You know what, Steve? One of the most ancient symbols of Our Lady is glass. Glass because light goes through it Mm -hmm. unchanged. And it itself, when it's perfectly clean, is invisible. And that's ultimately what Our Lady is, right? She's the perfect vessel, glass, pure, sinless, that allowed the Lord to be born into the world, who accompanied the Lord in his ministry to his death, gives us her final words, do whatever he tells you. Couldn't be any more clear. Right. Bottom line. That's discipleship. And then she rises in the devotional life of the church over time. John the Baptist played a larger role in the ancient church as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And one could say the first of the new, the bridge, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than Our Lady did. Our Lady did. You know, when we come back from break, we should talk about what you raised about Jesus choosing young men because there's another insight there of the relationship, but the distinction between formation and education that sometimes we forget and we need to remember, particularly in our contemporary world. 
Hmm. Okay. Yes. So let's, we'll start there and then we'll get into the apostles uh, when we come back from the break. Catholic radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Hey all, we're back on Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We're talking about the apostolic age and the, uh, the days of the apostles. And right before we went to break, Excellency, you, you mentioned the difference between uh, teaching and, or education and formation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. We, the disciples of the Lord, are to follow his example for he is the key to eternal life. And in our discussion about the apostles, the Lord makes a very interesting choice by choosing young men who, as we said, were looked over, passed over by the largest society. But those rabbis who who did choose young men, they were choosing them for two reasons. Because at a young age, the task was to educate them in the ways of Judaism, in the Torah, in the law, in the, in the requirements that would be uh, mandated for anyone who was faithful. But they also wanted to form them. And to form them is more than education, isn't it? It's yes. giving a person a, a, a viewpoint of life. Uh, one could also call it a culture a set of values. Um, it is the virtues, instilling in someone virtues to be able to live what they know intellectually to be true. It's not enough to know the truth. You have to live the truth. Or in Ephesians, we say to live the truth in love, St. Paul says. So in my mind, that ancient practice is what we're supposed to be doing, right? In our parishes mm-hmm. and in our schools whether it's in religious education in the parishes or in our Catholic schools, we are there to both educate and form, just like the Lord did. And even though the apostles were older, he did the same thing with them by taking them away to pray and to instruct. And in the gospel, it says that he instructed them oftentimes alone, that that is not recorded in the gospels, that he shared life with them, he laughed with them, he cried with them in the death of Lazarus. And he showed them the virtues of a life that he lived perfectly, that they were to imitate. So as we come out of this terrible period in our lives and we go back to our parishes and our schools, we need to reflect deeply upon this because we need to recommit ourselves to be a people who are learning the truth and living the truth, education and formation side by side, just as the Lord asked of the apostles and those who came after him. Yeah, it's very, um, it feels, sounds like it's very fatherly. You know, you send your, your kids to school to, so that they can grow intellectually, but at home you're trying to raise them morally, spiritually, physically. It's integral. 
So the church calls the family the domestic church. So just like you say, I don't have the privilege, obviously, to have children of my own, but for all of our listeners, and yourself included, Steve, who do have children, there is, I don't think, any more beautiful vocation than to educate, form, support, love, and accompany these children who are your own flesh and the flesh of your spouse. And Jesus gives us the model. He yeah. tells us how to do it, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's be yeah, it's, it's very fatherly and motherly. And, and fatherly and motherly. And I, and I think, you know, I've had the benefit of knowing many wonderful priests uh, ever since I was a little kid. And, you know, even priests and, and you, Your Excellency, as I've gotten to know you, are doing the same thing. You know, we're not your, I'm not your biological child, but I really feel like I'm your spiritual son and that you, you are forming me um, as we get to know each other. Yes, and vice versa. Because as is true for biological parents, our children do change us. <laughs> they do mm. help form us too. Because without them, you would not be a parent. Hmm. And yeah. because you are a parent with them, they have changed you forever. And they allow you to develop a part of your heart that you would not have done otherwise without them. And you need not be biological, absolutely, because we think of those parents who have adopted children and they basically are yes. their own because there is no genetic connection is irrelevant. Or spiritual right. children, like you say. Um, that is why it's interesting, I remember. <laughs> You know, children are just hot stuff because they just tell it like it is and they ask the questions and they could care less. <laughs> what? How right. <laughs> and I remember at Religious Ed, well, years ago, gosh, long time ago, one, one young boy said to me, he said, okay, he said, I'm supposed to call you father, but Jesus says, call nobody father. So how come mm. I'm disobeying Jesus to call you father? And I said, whoa. <laughs> I said, where'd you get that question from? <laughs> <laughs> and again I think the term father in the ancient world is life giver hmm. you give life but you don't give it you protect it you defend it you nurture it you form it you educate it that's why St. Joseph is another figure we should spend some time reflecting on because Joseph the tradition holds, dies before Jesus began his ministry, although there's no record of it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In fact, there's not a single word that is spoken by Joseph recorded in sacred scripture. Hmm. Yeah. And, and yet he fulfilled his task for the young Jesus, just as the law required. Right. Um, who taught Jesus to read and write? It was St. Joseph. Yeah. Who taught Jesus his prayers as a little boy? It was Joseph. With whom did Jesus go to temple to pray? It was Joseph. And there's a beautiful image of the talit, which is the prayer shawl that a, a devout Jewish man wears to pray in temple 
or even now in synagogue. This beautiful image in my mind's eye of Jesus being so close to Joseph that before he could have his own, Joseph would have wrapped him in his own tallit. Hmm. And in that quietness, Jesus could hear him pray, could actually hear his heart beating. Wow. See, that's what it means to be a father. And of course, Joseph was his foster father. But imagine the relationship Jesus had with the Father in heaven. Astounding. It's just all astounding to me. Yeah. And it's all wrapped up with what the apostolic age can teach us as, as we understand the great message of Easter. Right? Whether we're biologically related or not, are we not called to be fathers and mothers? Yes. Right? Right. So exactly. I, I, I really... Um, I want to hear uh, your thoughts on some of the apostles. We might not have time to get to all 12, but um, definitely at least, you know, the, the four that made up the inner circle. Um, so if we could just dive in, Excellency, to of Peter. Course, absolutely. Let's yeah. start with Peter, my favorite. <laughs> my favorite, not because he's the head of the church and he's the first bishop of Rome, and because in his death he was so profoundly humbled that he chose not to die in the same manner as Jesus. He did not think he was worthy enough to be crucified head up, so he was crucified head down. Mm -hmm. But Peter was a man of deep passion, deep zeal. Um, and the same passion that, that he gave his acclamation to the Lord that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The same passion that overtook him in his betrayal mm -hmm. is the same passion by which he proclaimed Jesus, his love for Jesus. Yes. So that's one of the great takeaways in my mind, is that what is powerful is that anyone who's going to lead in faith, whether you lead in your domestic church or the church, you have to have a deep, abiding fire, power, passion for Jesus. Right? Yeah. And Paul and, and Peter had that. The other thing that I think about Peter is in the great controversy, as we know, between Peter and Paul and in the ancient church of whether or not uh, those who came to faith in Jesus also had to abide by the law, the Jewish mm. law. Yes, right. And Peter, you know, basically straddled the question because he himself was faithful his whole life. But then in his experience with Cornelius and in the dream that the Lord gave him, okay, of eating what he would never have imagined eating as being unclean, right? Right. He was a man who was humble enough to allow the Lord to teach him and lead him in ways unknown to him. Okay. One of the great capital sins Right, perhaps the capital sin is pride, right? When we want mm -hmm. to take God's place in our life. Peter, for all his passion and for all his faults, was a humble man. Yeah. So he was able to yield to the will of the Lord that was revealed to him in a dream. As Joseph yielded in the dreams that were given to him to leave his livelihood and all the rest, right, to go into Egypt. 
with Mary and his foster child, his foster son. So in my mind, those two qualities have always stuck out in my mind, zeal and passion in Peter, and also a great profound humility. Yeah. What about for you, Steve? When you think of Peter, what resonates in your mind and heart? I, um, I feel like, uh, as far as relatability goes, for me, um, Peter is so relatable because he's impulsive and emotional, uh, which mm-hmm. um, I, I can tend to be. But, you know, he's a guy who, uh, you know, one minute he's walking on the water by faith, and then the next second he's sinking because he's, you know, mm-hmm. because of his impulsiveness and his, his emo- uh, you know, his emotions. Um, but like you said, you know, he, he loves deeply and um, wants to do what's right. The, the humility I hadn't thought of, but um, yeah, that's, that's why he's able to change his mind, right? With exactly what you're talking about with, uh, with the Gentiles when Paul comes and says, hey, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got to be this way. And uh, he didn't say, well, I'm the head of the church. He said, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I love Peter. Point. You know what, Steve? I think you raise an excellent lesson for all of us. And that is, in the life of Peter, he was at his worst when he was worried about himself. Whether mm-hmm. he was walking yes. on the water and sinking or s- trying to save his skin by betraying Jesus. When he was focused on himself, he was at his worst, and he was at his best when his eyes were fixed on Jesus. Caesarea Philippi, in his humility in the ancient church with the coming of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. So isn't that the same thing for you and me, right? For all of us? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's he's hilarious, too, because the Covides story, he's running out of Rome, and he runs into Jesus. Whoops, right. okay, let me go back. <laughs> right, exactly right, exactly, yeah. Um, so, so a worthy man upon which to build the rock of the church and all his successors to Francis in our own age. Yes. And how about, um, how about Peter's brother who introduced him to, uh, to Jesus, Andrew? Andrew, the one who brought Peter to Jesus. Yes. So let's, let's think about that. Okay. Think of the relationship Peter and Andrew had with each other. Okay. I don't have a brother. I do have an older sister. And, you know, sometimes the person that you are least going to follow, the advice is your sibling. Because, you know, there's always a history there, and you love each <laughs> right. other, but you also fight and all the rest. You know how it is. Right. So, Andrew comes, oh, look, I've, you know, come, come. You know, you got to say, you got to be kidding me. I have 10 other things to do today. Yeah. But, the, but there was a love then between them, right? There was a bond between them yes. that oftentimes is overlooked, but was deep. And that bond was the bridge for Peter to encounter the Lord. And later on, let us consider, how do you think Andrew felt when Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church? 
See, a man of lesser faith would probably say, wait a minute, I was the one who brought him, wait a minute. Right, yes. <laughs> but, but, but he didn't, he didn't. Yeah, especially that it's his brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like well, you're saying. I'm answering to you, wait a minute. <laughs> but, but no, because again, it was the rootedness and Andrew figures prominently in the Greek church, in the Orthodox church, mm. right? Because of his missionary work after, after the resurrection of the Lord. So another great man, but it, from my point of view, it's those dynamics that I think glimpse for us um, the, the, the human life of the apostles, in this case, Andrew, that gives at least me great encouragement and hope. Each of them in their own way teach us some of the profound qualities we need to be a disciple of the Lord. Yeah. Anything in your mind from Andrew? Anything resonates in your heart? No, you know, I didn't, um, I don't feel like I know him as well as, uh, as, as I know Peter. Um, and precisely because of, of what you're saying, and I never thought about it before, but yeah, he's the first apostle called, and, and then he brings his brother there, and then he kind of steps into the background. And so it's that, that humility. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and the love for his brother, yeah. Absolutely. You know, the other apostle that I think is interesting from just a human dynamic point of view is Matthew. Mm-hmm. So... And the reason is, what do we know about him? That he was a tax collector. Right. So what do we know about tax collectors? That they were double traders. Yes, for reviled. Uh, without a doubt, and rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. Because number one, they were agents of the oppressor, Rome. Mm -hmm. So you go over to the enemy, you are not gonna be very high in my book. And at the time, a tax collector, Imagine, could you imagine if the IRS did this today? <laughs> As a tax collector, you were required to collect the tax that went to Rome. And many times, Rome looked the other way if you asked for more than the tax, hmm. because that you kept in your own pocket. Right. And you could extort for as much as the market would bear. So you were both a trader and oftentimes a thief. <laughs> so yeah. you could imagine no one being more unpopular. And what does Jesus do? Chooses him. And what does he do? Leaves everything and goes to follow him. Now, this is my question for which we have no direct evidence. But what do you think was the dynamic <laughs> between the apostles yeah. when Matthew appeared and joined the group? <laughs> They must have looked at each other and said, where did this one come from? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's that Caravaggio yeah, I mean, painting, right, yeah, when Jesus I mean, is pointing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tried to follow the law. I wanted to be covered in the dust. This guy was both the traitor and God knows if he was a thief. And, and now yeah. he's with us. I just, I have often thought of that. But yeah. again, what's the lesson? The lesson is the mighty band that follows Jesus includes everyone 
who is willing to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't the, the unwashed and the washed. <laughs> yeah. We're all called to true conversion, repentance, and to follow Jesus. But even among the apostles, I am sure there would have been at least some initial misgivings or questions or, or worse when some of these people came into this group and they must have said, what is the master thinking of? No different than Judas. We haven't spoken of Judas either. Right. Who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which the prophets tell us was the cost of a life of a slave, of a servant. What was that dynamic? Yeah. And, and when, when did he begin to change? And why? You know, there's a tradition that, there's, that he was a, 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 a zealot at heart and that therefore, you know, Judas wanted this Jesus we talked about love and mercy and forgiveness is lovely, but he wanted a liberator. He wanted him to come and free God's chosen people. And perhaps it came at a frenzy when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he was welcomed as Caesar would have been welcomed and suddenly nothing happened. Yeah. And perhaps that sealed in his mind that this Jesus was the was his fraud. But... I ask, you know, one of the questions that haunts my mind is, the scripture says that he would t help himself from the money in a bag, right? Mm -hmm. For himself or for whatever he was using it for. And I'm thinking to myself, the other apostles, we're not talking like thousands of people, we're talking 12 plus Jesus. Did no one notice? Right. I mean, Jesus would have known, because Jesus knew all. But would the apostles have not have noticed? Perhaps they didn't. Yeah. Perhaps they did. Perhaps they confronted him. Certainly we do not know. Yeah. But that they did not go to Jesus and say, get rid of this guy, <laughs> again, is a lesson for us. Right? right. They, that they accepted all these people from different walks of life. And, you know, the, I, I, uh, I mentioned to my family this weekend um, because... You know, Judas was a zealot and expected something from Jesus. Wasn't there, wasn't there an apostle named Simon the Zealot who also maybe yes, would have been expecting? Yes. And he didn't yes. react the same way. And so I, I, told, I told my family, because one of my kids asked, you know, what was the deal with Judas? And um, I told him what you said a few weeks ago. And I said, mm -hmm. the thing that we need to take away from him is that... Um, Here's a guy who was one of the intimates with Jesus and for three years lived with him, traveled with him, listened to him, and yet never encountered him. Um, and, you know, had that heart-to-heart that -heart relationship, apparently. And so, you know, if I remember correctly, and you said, that's, that's the lesson for us, that we need to make sure that we are encountering Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right, or, or let me add a second possible way of interpreting Judas, which is darker and more somber and more thought-provoking. Could we imagine Judas having, having really had an encounter with Jesus? 
and rejected it. <laughs> you see, I once gave a homily that uh, got many people upset. Well, I've given actually a decent amount of homilies <laughs> that have upset people. But that's all another story. <laughs> and uh, if I gave it a title, I would call it the uh, story of the two traitors. Because why don't we contrast for a second two of the apostles, Judas and Peter. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and became the operational way that the authorities could lay hands on Jesus and begin the trial that ultimately condemned him to crucifixion. And yet the scripture says that Judas went back to the chief priests and elders mm -hmm. and threw the coins back at them, yes. having regretted right, what he did. Peter betrayed Jesus three times to his face. And yet, Peter went and wept. Right. And converted, repented. And the scripture says Judas hung himself in despair. So, you compare two of the twelve apostles, both betrayed Jesus to his face. One by his words, one by a kiss, which is ironic, a symbol of love, right. commitment, even friendship. What's the difference between the two? They both sinned. But mm -hmm. one was able to ask and seek repentance. And the other, for whatever reason, could not. And so, one along the way encountered Jesus as merciful and forgiving, and perhaps one with the best of opportunities and interaction, that portion of Jesus' message he did not, which is Judas. Right. But we have. We have. Mm -hmm. We have. We screened out Jesus crucify him, right, in the past, yes. when we were together for Good Friday. I mentioned that last time. Yes. We have encountered that, so we've all betrayed the Lord. So that contrast between those two apostles is, for me, is, um, is very sober, sobering, but also very encouraging that Peter yes. was able to seek that. Judas was not. And you mentioned the zealots. At the time of Jesus, that, that fervor, there was. A, 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 see, we can't see the, the, uh, the time of Jesus religiously as a monolith. It was not. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You had the priestly class. You had the Essenes in the desert. You had the zealots. There was a, a, a fervent of religious sentiments, much of which did not fit with each other. Right? One can even say it was almost a confused environment. So even among the zealots, there were different strands of them, including the ultra-militant, that within that, the truth comes in Jesus. So there was, hmm. even among the apostles, I'm sure there was this, 
this interplay of different opinions and thoughts and starting points and viewpoints that would have made for interesting dinner conversation, I'm sure, <laughs> with the Lord. Yeah. Excellency, before we run out of time in this segment, I just want to see, um, uh, I, I want to hear your thoughts on um, the apostle that Jesus loved, okay. Son of Thunder, John. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a person with whom I exchange often, you know, some spiritual reflections asked me in this Lent to pay particular attention to St. John, hmm. the beloved. Um, tradition holds the youngest of all the apostles, but one who is deeply in love with the Lord. Um, and I imagine that to have been a true father figure, just like you described. Okay. Someone to whom John opened his mind and his heart, and the Lord helped to form him, so much so that at the time of Jesus' greatest need, he did not walk away. So he did not, he was not afraid for his own skin. He was there at the foot of the cross. And to whom was given this great gift, as you mentioned before, Steve, Our Lady, and how he yes. took care of her until her assumption into heaven. So I, what are the qualities, what are the characteristics? Young, uh, I'm going to use the word brazen in the sense of on fire, committed, single-hearted. Yes. One who was devoted to the Lord. You know, it says that at the Last Supper, he was closest to the Lord to be able to ask the question when the Lord said, one of you about to betray me. And then mm -hmm. he interjects with this question. So um, there's a purity there. There's a purity. There is a, a, a single-heartedness there. There is a youthfulness that, to me, is, again, it's very encouraging, even though I'm not a youth myself anymore. <laughs> but we can all be youthful in spirit, right? Yes. It's not chronological. <laughs> yeah. And so John... Um, is someone I continue to meditate on now that we're in the Easter season because there is much, it's like a well, it's like a, a vein in a, uh, in a mind. I think there's much more that I need to dig out for my own spiritual life. But that's some of the fruits of what I've been doing in Lent, reflecting on this unique among the apostles. What, from your perspective, Steve, what, what's your sense? Yeah, you know, again, he, he left us a lot of writing, and you brought up humility with, um, with some of the other apostles that we talked about. And, you know, with him, he, he raced Peter to the tomb Easter morning, and he got there first, but he was humble enough to say, no, it's, it's Peter's role to go in first. I know my place. And um, right. Right. Uh, right. It's, it's amazing. I, I need, go ahead. No, 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 please. Oh, I was just going to say, I need to work on it. Humility. Oh, well, me too, my friend. But you know what's interesting? <laughs> As I prayed over the gospel to preach um, on Easter, it's interesting that it says John went in and believed. It didn't say Peter went in and believed. Hmm. Did it? <laughs> wow. John did. John did. Amazing. Because the bridge to God is love. It is love. Talk about brazen. It is in the first letter of John 
where he has the audacity, the sacred audacity to define who God is. Mm. He says, God is love. Doesn't say he looks like love, he loves, right. he has love. God is, is love. Yes. But in fact, God is in fact love. That is why he is a perfect community of divine persons. Yes. Who share their life completely in love. Yes, they, God is love. Um, the, but, but that comes from the purity of his life and his faith and his, and, and his love for the Lord Jesus. I wish, I pray, I pray I can grow in that love in my own life ever more deeply every day, right? Yes. And uh, in 30 seconds, let's handle the, the nature of God being love. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We should, we, but we should well, come back to that. Shows. Are you kidding? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> let's, um, let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll answer questions. A lot of people listen to Catholic Radio and get great information to help build their faith and support their faith. But there are also people out there who haven't yet built a relationship with God, and Catholic Radio reaches them wherever they are. It evangelizes in a way like no other medium, and that's just one of the many reasons why Catholic Radio is so important. Welcome back, everyone, to Let Me Be Frank. We're in the portion of the show where we answer questions and again my lack of discipline only left us time for one but um it's a pretty good one excellency uh we got a, a question asking about the eucharistic miracle at buenos aires and what is god trying to tell us through this sign and wonder i had to go back and i had to look up the eucharistic mir miracle in buenos aires so if you don't mind i'll just give quick background as to what it was please yes absolutely so uh in Buenos Aires, a woman uh, leaving the communion line saw a consecrated host left on a candle, and after Mass, she reported it to the pastor. The pastor took the host, placed it in water, and in the tabernacle. And uh, the following Monday, he went in to, to check, and it had actually turned to flesh, and the water turned bloody. And he contacted his bishop, who uh, at the time was Cardinal Borgoglio, um, our Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. And uh, they took a number of steps. They took photos of it. They left it for, I think it was three years and nothing happened to it. Didn't uh, dis deteriorate. It would remained. And so they sent it out. They sent part parts of it out to um, different medical labs around the world, including, I think it was Columbia University was one and didn't tell them where the, it came from, but they just said, can you analyze this for us? And each lab individually, without knowing where it came from, said it came from the heart of a young Middle Eastern man and that uh, the man must have suffered recently some severe physical trauma because there was an abundance of white blood cells. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, the Vatican just recently approved the miracle. So, mm -hmm. um, it, just to get back to the question, what is God trying to tell us through this and through other miracles, Excellency? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it, it's always easier to describe what something is not than what something is. And the miracles, both those performed by the Lord in his earthly life and those that have occurred since, are not displays of magic. 
they are not meant first and foremost to awe individuals uh, simply because they are acts of power but they are manifestations of God's presence and grace in the world to teach us to instruct us to form us so in the life of Jesus his miracles were signs of the kingdom that he helped people to glimpse aspects of the life that awaits us in the kingdom of heaven so to hear in this what could have easily been seen as a sacrilege right by leaving the host that way yes that an act yep. of sacrilege right uh, this priest in his in his piety and this woman who reported it in her piety this was an opportunity in the mind of god to teach everyone what appears to be simple bread is actually the body and blood soul and divinity of jesus and the miracle is there not to to awe people to say oh god could do that because god could do anything he wants <laughs> right the laws of nature we think there are laws of nature there's only one law okay and that's god yes he could do whatever he chooses whenever he chooses however he chooses but he always does it for our good and so i think what a profound teaching to yeah. be able to for the people of Buenos Aires and the whole church now to say, you don't come up to communion to receive a glorified symbol or sign or a piece of bread that we just pray over. You're receiving the Lord. You're receiving the body and blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus. So that will endure now as another moment where God in his mercy reteaches us the truth of our faith as a sign of his presence and power and grace in the world. That's what the miracles are. Yes. Great. And, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from all of you. Send us your questions for Bishop Frank via social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. So that wraps up another week. Before we go, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum in New Haven. Listeners who are looking for some quality Catholic content on the web or social media, type KOFC Museum and give it a like or follow. Always, uh, you should look for our podcast, which is out later, and Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Excellency, thank you again for another great, great conversation. Steve, thank you for the opportunity to share faith with you, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. May I ask for your blessing before we go? Certainly. May the joy of the risen Lord fill our hearts and minds so that we may be messengers of glad tidings to proclaim to the world that Christ is risen, Christ is truly risen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Happy Easter again, Steve. I look forward to our next show. Sounds great. Talk to you then. <laughs>